From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. And my guest today, Maya Sen, is a professor of public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at, at Harvard. Um, she's also the author with Adabonica of a new book, The Judicial Tug of War, How Lawyers, Politicians, and Ideological Incentives Shape the American Judiciary. Uh, importantly, I mean, she's a political scientist and a public policy scholar, uh, not a lawyer and, and a legal academic. And I think uh, Maya and I got into a sort of a, you know, a, a political realist perspective on the Supreme Court, on what's happened over the past few years, on some of the, uh, I think, unfortunate decision-making by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and potentially unfortunate decision-making by uh, Justice Breyer that we are witnessing right now. I, it's really interesting, I think. I mean, I think we we think we know the Supreme Court, uh, but coverage of it is so dominated by a lawyer perspective that is really refreshing and I think really enlightening to hear what she has to say. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Maya Sen, is a professor at the uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, up in Massachusetts. She is the author of a new book called The Judicial Tug of War. I want to talk about that book, and we want to talk about uh, the judiciary and and many things that are happening there. Maya, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, what was on my mind, I mean, I want to talk about your your research and, and the big picture and, and all these things. But what was on my mind immediately is um, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, who is on the old side. Uh, many people would like him to retire. Um, he seems to have been voicing uh, with increasing frequency a sort of high-minded, um, we can't have the courts involved in politics, uh, things that seem to me to be making making Democrats kind of queasy. Like he's saying it would be wrong of him to just sort of look at the calendar, count the votes in the Senate and say, it's like time to get out of here before the midterms. Yes, that's, that's right. And I think you're, you're completely accurate in saying that it's making progressives queasy and Democrats queasy, but it's probably also secretly delighting Republicans. Yes. <laughs> you know, and one thing that's kind of interesting is that he is coming out with a new book, uh, I believe in, in the fall sometime where the book is actually being touted as being written by a current justice on the Supreme Court, which many people have taken to mean that he has no intent of retiring in the near future. Which is which is very interesting, and it's been interesting to see the reception from legal elites to this new piece of information. Yeah, and it's you know this is a telling sort of thing, right? Because you know we we have a lot of 
I mean, I think it's obvious if you look at it that, like, in fact, federal judges do strategically time their retirements based on the political correlation of forces. I mean, they don't all do it. They don't uniformly do it. Uh, but you'd have to be you'd have to be blind not to see that this happens um, or for the judges themselves not to notice that like it makes a difference who the president is but i think the like official view of the legal community is that that's that's wrong that's not how it's supposed to work yeah so there's actually there're actually a fair number of academic papers on this topic that have mm-hmm. basically come with a few exceptions they've basically come to the conclusion that you just said which is that as a general pattern it does seem to be the case that there are these things called strategic retirements where Judges tend to retire when there's a friendly president in the White House and actually that there's also the, the party, a friendly party. So the, the party of the president that appointed them is also in control of the Senate, right? So there's this pattern where that, you know, if that's the case, then you see retirements from those judges, like Democratic appointed judges. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's any question that that happens descriptively. Now on the Supreme Court, it's a little bit, it gets a little bit weird because there are only nine of them. Right. So when it happens, it draws a little bit of extra, ten- oh, well, a lot of extra attention. But I think it also kind of in- inflames kind of the sentiment that like, oh, this is really inappropriate. We shouldn't be talking about this. We should be pretending that this isn't happening. And that actually colors how people respond to it. And like, as you say, like members of the legal elite, I think this is sort of distasteful. You don't want to talk about the partisan consequences of all of this. And you don't want to ascribe partisan motives because it's very kind of unseemly. And it also, as you say, like kind of, um, tears a little bit about at the kind of institutional legitimacy of the court or the appearance that it's above politics and above partisan infighting. So every time you talk about it, um, you do get like kind of this pushback from members of the legal elite about it. But it does happen. So, <laughs> and I mean, I wonder, right? I mean, you know, does it does it damage the court's legitimacy or does it damage the legitimacy of other members of the legal elite, right? Because I mean, part yeah. of their self-conception is that they possess like technical expertise in the field of law. Whereas like I can count uh six versus three on the Supreme Court. And like I don't I don't need to consult with a constitutional lawyer to sort of evaluate the court in partisan political terms the same way I might the Senate and say the Senate is closely divided, but Democrats have a majority and the Supreme Court is not that closely divided and Republicans have a majority. Uh, but that seems to like cast aspersions on the, the the practice of legal theory. Yeah, absolutely. This is actually one of the big themes of the of the book that I have coming out, kind of the power of the legal profession and the fact that a lot of members of the legal profession really have a stake in the Supreme Court, in its composition, and also kind of the prestige that we ascribe to it. So sometimes you get a lot of commentary from lawyers who routinely argue before the Supreme Court about what they think about the Supreme Court. And of course, they're going to say the court is above partisan politics. Mm -hmm. Like it helps them for the court to appear to be above partisan politics, because that's what they charge the big money for. They charge big money to argue these cases. And it's not a good look when a lot of the cases end up being 5-4 along partisan lines, or now 6-3 along partisan lines, right? It doesn't, it doesn't help them um, kind of curry like this prestige that that they like. There was a lot of, uh, like when, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was being considered, there was also a lot of kind of murmuring among legal elites about whether he should be confirmed kind of given his kind of these allegations of impropriety and things like that, you know, and there were all these articles like, 
while he's just, you know, he's an exemplary person who considers both sides. And when he, when he and I were in law school together, he was just the nicest person and very considerate. And, you know, he's really been kind to his law clerks and things like that. And you can see that they're really stretching for kind of nonpartisan ways to, to talk about someone's qualifications in a way that doesn't really resonate with most people. And this is because, I mean, Kavanaugh in particular had been very, um, you know, I mean, he he had a, a high level legal career, but like it was a very partisan, absolutely legal career. You know, there wasn't. I, I mean, there there are lots of lawyers, um, and they do different kinds of things. But in this case, I mean, he was doing stuff that was quite partisan kind of stuff. So they couldn't. You couldn't say about him, uh, well, he won this incredible case where he like put away these mobsters, right? Like something that would be not nonpartisan. He like litigated for the Bush administration uh, in various sort of uh, political causes. And then people who like part of their job is getting their students placed for clerkships exactly. are, are like talking about, well, he's, he's so good to his clerks, but like, what does that tell me as a citizen? He's, he's so good to his clerks. And also he, he really stops to consider all sides of a case. Before right. <laughs> then going on to rule in a very conservative direction, of course, but he really considers thoughtfully both sides of the case. And that, again, that's something that I think doesn't really resonate in this kind of environment anymore. But you could see how for, for a certain segment of the legal elite community, it's like a really important thing to just keep, just try to keep afloat, right? You want, you want to have a Supreme Court that really is like engaged in thoughtful, intellectual, above the partisan fray debate. Um, because that is where that community draws a lot of its power from. And the the history of this, right, has changed. I mean, we know politics has become more polarized overall uh, over the past several decades. But it's also it's just remarkable to look at Supreme Court politics of the like not that distant past. And it seems to me like presidents used to be less um, or interest groups, right, like less attentive to who yeah. was who was getting these selections and it really was closer to I, I guess the legal elites ideal of like well they're just coughing up some kind of famous person with a law degree um yeah and and i mean how has that evolved so there's a there's kind of an interesting trajectory here where for a lot of u.s history presidents viewed judicial appointments essentially as patronage mm-hmm so they didn't, they didn't invest the same kind of policy considerations as they did, say, starting basically in the 1980s. Like so much changed in the 1980s. But one of the things that also changed was starting to look at judges as basically policy oriented appointments, essentially with Ronald Reagan. Before that, they were, they were mostly seen as patronage appointments or a way to curry favor with different constituencies from the president's perspective. And what did that do? That left a lot of power to the legal profession. And so a lot of lower court appointments essentially were kind of marshaled through with the support of the legal community, right, uh, at the state and federal level. And then in the 1980s, kind of Ronald Reagan comes in and kind of, and, and the Republican Party starts to see judicial appointments as a way to move policy forward. Hmm. And you can you can think about it in different ways. Like, are Republicans actually moving their own policy agenda forward, or are they just playing defense on Democrats' policy uh, preferences or policy agendas? You could probably say it's a little bit of both, right? The courts are very active and social policies that conservatives care about, but they also can be very effective in limiting the ability of Democrats to do anything, right? So so at some point in the 1980s, judges actually start to become important from a policy perspective, mm-hmm. right? So you have that. So that's part A. And then part B is that you have the kind of what we would call the rise of the conservative legal movement, right? So at this point in the 1980s, you actually get things like the Federalist Society 
And for listeners who might not know what that is, the Federalist Society is a conservative intellectual legal organization that came out in the 1980s. And the goal of it was essentially to counter what conservatives viewed as a kind of overwhelming liberal lean of the legal profession Mm -hmm. and of legal, the legal academy. So it started in law schools and it, it cultivated kind of this intellectual atmosphere, but it, it really did a very effective job at nurturing conservative legal talent through law schools with an eye toward creating basically a deep bench of potential conservative candidates for court appointments. And it's been hugely effective. And, and, and this kind of network, right? So the idea, at least, is that Republican Party politicians have sort of private knowledge of who people are like through their through their federal society work and you can you can both like indicate that somebody is ideologically reliable because they came up through this network exactly uh, but but also maintain the public pretense that it's like well this is like a guy he went to a good law school you know he had some jobs who's to say he's calling balls and strikes yeah and it, i mean it, it- the the way that they kind of created this network is uh, very interesting. There there have been a couple of really good books written about it, which I I can recommend to your readers. Um, mm-hmm. One of them was by Amanda Hollis Brisky. Um, the other one is by Stephen Tallis. So they've there's a fair amount of academic work done on this. And one of the things that that I think they did very effectively is they created a culture of prestige around themselves to essentially back candidates as prestige high qualifications candidates. And some of the candidates that, that we're talking about now, you know, Sam Alito, um, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, all of these candidates um, have connections to the Federalist Society in some capacity, right? So it's both a signal, right, about a, kind of a reliable vote and, and a reliable conservative philosophy, but it's also like it adds another stamp of prestige, which is really important in the legal community. Prestige is super important, right? So they went to the right law schools, they have the right connections, they have the right letters from the right conservative professors, they had the right clerkships. You know, in Brett Kavanaugh's case, go you know, he clerked for Kennedy, he eventually replaced. So th- there's kind of like both the signal and also the kind of marker of prestige. Yeah, and it, it creates a kind of a, a hype, right? Like, you know, uh, conservative uh, journalists who who I know and, and I read and follow, they were like amped up about Amy Coney Barrett years before she got nominated right and that's like a network there sort of doing that work whereas i i don't think of myself as a wildly uninformed person but like i am not excited about any current appellate judges and their future career prospects just because i i don't know right it's you like need to do a better job following it there are people who follow like lower court appointments like people follow like the minor league baseball team no i mean there, there absolutely are but it's like what there isn't is like a progressive legal network that does that exact same kind of work part of that though is i mean your research indicates that i mean conservatives are correct that the legal academy has a big uh leftward tilt, right? I mean, if you yeah. if you just throw darts at like professors at good law schools, you're going to get a, a very left-wing group of people. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. So that's really important to kind of understanding the landscape here. So it's it's undoubtedly true that there's a left-leaning bent among the nation's elite law schools. And and that's actually just generally true about like universities in general. So this is like, this is not something that should surprise anybody. But law schools tend to produce left-leaning lawyers, right? So there's less of a need among progressives to form this kind of tight knit network that nurtures liberal, like sort of the equivalent liberal talent for judgeships. Why? Because candidates are much more numerous. 
Mm-hmm. So you don't need to cultivate and nurture and kind of put forth candidates like Amy Coney Barrett because there are like 10 Amy Coney Barretts on the left. Right. And they're like, you know, there are many candidates that Biden could draw from, whereas, you know, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump were actually much more curtailed in looking at graduates of Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, right? Because there's just so many fewer conservative candidates coming up. And there are also way fewer conservative professors. So when I started working on this, we started seeing this pattern in the data, right? That we we have a lot of ideological data about graduates of top law schools. And they're just like, they're very liberal and they've gotten more liberal over time. And we started presenting this work at law schools, kind of showing like we would we would present this at a law school and pull up the data for that law school and show the law professors in the room, like how liberal their students were. And they were just like, not at all surprised. Mm-hmm. They were just like, oh yeah, no, our students are, are really liberal. And you know what this meant for them was that it was much easier to place their conservative students in fancy clerkships. Right. Because they're about, you know, it's 50-50 in terms of conservative and liberal judges. And conservative judges need as many clerks as liberal ones do, but they're just way fewer conservative law students. So if you were a conservative law student, it would be much, much easier for you to get a fancy clerkship or even a Supreme Court clerkship than you if you were a liberal law student because there are too many liberal law students. It's just basic supply and demand. No, and, and that's what I always think about about this this hype around you know whoever becomes the next uh, you know Republican uh, Supreme Court appointment, which I've I've now seen several of. They they always have all these hype men talking about oh this guy's so brilliant, oh this guy's so brilliant. Uh, but when you when you look at it right, when you look at the career paths, like it's clearly the opposite. I mean, not that they're dummies, right? But that because. Half of federal judges approximately are Republicans, yep. but many less than half of the people with really, really high LSAT scores are Republicans. Yes. There's just like huge – I mean it's it's in effect affirmative action for Republican lawyers and people who were they Democrats would be considered sort of unremarkable are like at the top tier of the the Republican law student pool. I mean, because like it's a democracy, right? Like Republicans, <laughs> if they win half the elections, they get to appoint half the judges. And it doesn't matter if their like average law school quality isn't as high. Yeah. So the way I've always thought about it is when when there's a judicial candidate and someone usually in the media or a legal elite points out that they had a really fancy clerkship. I think I always am skeptical that that's a signal of anything <laughs> uh, for the precisely the thing, the reason that you said. Right. So if you if you have someone who uh, clerked for a conservative judge, it's it's basically a sign that they're conservative. Right. <laughs> um, and not necessarily a sign. I mean, there's some exceptions here, obviously. And I, I just want to be clear about that. Like Scalia always hired one liberal clerk and that's very famous. But for the most part, like it's mostly a sign that they're conservative and not necessarily a sign about their quality or their qualifications or anything like that. Um, one thing that was kind of annoying along these lines is that there were a lot of people who were commenting that, oh, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh must be ha- highly qualified because they had these fancy clerkships, but not necessarily because, uh, <laughs> right. you know, judges are looking for people who are ideologically like minded. And so there are fewer of them. Yeah. OK, let, let's take a break. And, and I want to bring this uh, back around to, to Breyer, actually. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, 
you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So my hypothesis that you can shoot down, if you like, is that one of the consequences of this sort of disproportion is that because the legal academy is so liberal, because most of the law students are liberal, because conservatives need to develop this sort of explicit network and Democrats sort of don't, that the Democrats wind up with people who are more bought into sort of general lawyer stuff and less into ideological politics because you can be sort of I don't quite want to say lazy but yeah like you can you can be a little you you, you don't like need to do this explicit political work like the law schools pump out plenty of you know liberal lawyers there's plenty of liberal law professors and so you don't have the kind of work that will get you a supreme court justice who will strategically time his retirement to advance your policy goals because he's like just some lawyer guy yeah so i i i kind of agree but with a slightly different take on it so i think someone like ruth bader ginsburg i think she really for whatever reason, we can talk about kind of what those reasons were. She really thought that no one could replace her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of it was that maybe, as you say, cause there, there's so many potential liberal candidates, yet she was the one who had this trailblazing career. She was the one who crashed all of these glass ceilings. She was the one who was chosen on the court. There must have been something really special about her. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't dispute that. I think there was, there's something really, there was something really special about her. But once you get to that position where you're in a lifetime appointment and a lot of your career has been spent in that position, kind of understanding that position and enjoying the personal, the personal adulation that comes along with that. When that moment comes, when someone actually dares to say that you're fungible, I think that is a very unsettling feeling and you would be prone to reject that. 
Yeah. And I think there's something similar with Breyer where that he, out of all of these liberal lawyers, the overwhelming number of Harvard Law School graduates and Yale Law School graduates, he was the one who made it onto the court. There must be something really special and unique about him that he has to be the one to fill the seat, that he's not replaceable. And I don't, right. I don't see that sense among conservatives. Um, I think I, I actually take that back. I mean, you kind of do like Scalia and Rehnquist, I think you could say kind of had that. But I think there is also in among the conservatives, there's a sense of like, this is you are part of a bigger movement. And you've been told that through your affiliation with something like the Federalist Society and your networks and the politicians who have conversed with you about this, like you have been informed that your role is part of something bigger. And I don't get the sense that that happens on the left as much. Right. I mean, because they they I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, because Kennedy in a judicial ruling sense, like actually was a little bit unique. Right. I mean, he he was the he was the median justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody's perception was that even though he was being replaced by a former clerk of his and somebody who he seemingly maybe had a, a hand in selecting, that he was not going to be replaced by a a Kennedy clone. Right. That like it actually moved the the, the judiciary. Whereas like you looked at the numbers. Right. Ginsburg, had she stepped down in a timely way, would have been very reliably replaced by somebody who at least like votes the same way. Right. I mean, it, Absolutely. it, would, it, would, it wouldn't have yeah. moved the medians. Right. Um, but it was Kennedy who, you know, sort of ultimately is a, a loyalist to the movement, despite some dissenting votes, whereas Ginsburg and now Breyer are loyalists to, you know, their own uh genius and i mean there's somewhat divergent cases obviously there was like a whole I, I mean you 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 referenced the tote bags um there was like this whole ruth bader ginsburg celebrity phenomenon that i think um did not end in like a super happy place for like her actual legal ideas oh that's right i mean you know it back in 2014 she could have retired had a favorable senate and been replaced with another Obama appointment who would have voted in a very similar fashion to her. You know, I, I think at the time people were saying, you know, but she's so pow- she's such a powerful dissenting voice, uh, which is true, but, but that means you're in the minority, right? Yes. Like you're not, you're not a median, you're not in the majority. You are, you, you're writing beautiful opinions that are important and make people feel that they're being heard, but you're not actually doing anything. Um, and so I think that there were, there were some people who were very frustrated at the time. That frustration has kind of grown. But the people who I think continue to be the most frustrated are the people who are kind of more pragmatic about the court and what its role is and how you count votes and how that actually translates into policy change. I think the people who are the most upset, I, I would say, are probably like the political, <laughs> si- the, the pragmatic right. political scientists <laughs> are just like, come on. Um, we could have had, uh, you know, uh, John Roberts continuing as our median as opposed to Brett Kavanaugh. And for, I think for listeners who might not, who might just say, well, they're both Republicans. What does that matter if it's six to three or five to four or if Roberts is your median versus, uh, Kavanaugh? Uh, Roberts is quite a bit more liberal than Kavanaugh. Right. Um, so, so liberals stand to get Roberts's vote every now and again, you know, and, 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 and he's known to, or at least people think, that he's very concerned about the court's perception and what people think of the court and the court's legitimacy. 
And with Brett Kavanaugh, you get none of that. You get none of that nuance. You get none of that kind of engagement. You get someone who is, as you say, is known kind of as a pretty hardline partisan and who's well to the right, well to the right of the average American. And, and also, the, I mean, the justices all have their their quirks, right? So on a 5-4 court, you know, maybe there's there were a couple cases where Gorsuch sided with the more right. liberal judges, right? right? And it's like very specific, you know, particular issues. But it's like, if you only need one person, you have at least like a fighting chance. Um, getting two is like really hard. And I mean, I also always thought with Ginsburg, right? I mean, there was something... Um, I mean, she did write, you know, good dissents. People, people like them. People, but the idea that like nobody else could do that is very odd to me. I mean, I, I remember in the winter of 2008, 2009, I went to a conference that was some journalists, mostly law professors, uh, people in the nonprofit world, progressives, you know, talking about legal issues, constitutional issues. Um, so I asked people at one point, I was like, who's Obama going to put on the Supreme Court? And they were like shaking their heads like, Sonia Sotomayor. And oh, I was like, wow. what? What? <laughs> no, and I was expecting them to then like tell me something, you know, like, you know, they were best friends going back to childhood, but actually she has terrible opinions on some issue. But it was just like they were convinced that there was going to be pressure to put a Latina nominee forward that she was, you know, had the formal qualifications, but she wasn't one of them. I, I remember she doesn't have the quote unquote sparkling intelligence. Yeah. Uh, that, that you understand the court. And I was looking at them. I was like, I don't like what, like, what does this even mean? Like what, yeah. what is the conversation that we're trying to have here? I think and at I, the time it was like, I, I think it was someone like Larry Tribe. Was it Larry Tribe who actually said that she just wasn't, she wasn't as smart as some of the other not possible nominees. Was I that mean, what she said? I, I, I don't I remember. Think he's Jeff, Jeffrey Rosen had like an article to that effect, quoting some other people, you know, and I think there was a, I mean, I always thought there was a something of a racist undertone to some of that commentary, but also just like, what did it, like, what did it matter? Right? Like if you had 10 different candidates, like, would you give them all IQ tests and, give the appointment to the yeah. one who scored high? Like, like why? Like, what, what, what I mean, does that have to do with anything? It's really why I totally agree with you, but it's, it's really wild when you consider that we have none of these conversations for members of Congress. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, we just, we count the votes. We count like party line votes. We sometimes consider who might switch and who might not for reasons not having to do with their IQ or their intelligence or their ability to write persuasively. But for some reason, when it comes to the court, we think that talking about these things in this way is um, kind of not only okay, but it's to be expected. And it makes you wonder a lot about who the audience is here. You know, is the audience members of the public or is it just really law professors? And I think that a lot of it has to do with the kind of circling back to the way that we started the conversation. It has to do with the fact that legal elites are looked to for the ultimate authority on the Supreme Court. Right. So when members of the public are thinking about, like, uh, well, Sotomayor, what do we think about her? Let's ask members of the legal elite. They'll tell you kind of what you said. Right. Like we wouldn't give her tenure on our faculty here, maybe. But 
I don't know. Who cares? Who cares? I agree. I mean, I don't know. And and I think I, I think ultimately, like, I think now she's viewed very differently. Yes. I mean, she is now seeing. Yeah. I, I mean, that is the other thing is that, like, I think she is now seeing uh, very well regarded again for her descents uh, because she's in the minority, uh, but because she brings a different perspective to bear um, than I think a lot of the other members have, which is exactly which is weird because it's exactly what her critics were saying. Right. Was yeah. that like Obama was going to reach for diversity in his appointment rather than for the person who they thought was like the best like legal document writer. But then that's exactly why she's valued as yeah. a member of the court. I mean, it seems good to me that we have um, representational values. Like, I don't like Republicans, but obviously it would be crazy if we didn't have any Republican judges just because they're underrepresented among fancy law school graduates. Like, it's 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 a political yeah. system I mean, that's like, like, we but, should but, have people of all races we should have people from both parties like how else would it possibly work the whole the whole question of representation on the courts also gets really weird because when you step back and kind of think about it it's a third of government right the mm-hmm. courts are a third of our government they are co-equal branch they have the power of judicial review and yet we've handed over a third of our government to lawyers mm-hmm. and um <laughs> like eight percent of them went to harvard law school which, mm-hmm. you know, is great. Like, I love Harvard. Um, I work <laughs> here. Like, I, I think they're very smart people who went to Harvard. But do we really want 8% of a third of government going to one law school? It's, and then uh, when you when you count uh, kind of the top 14 law schools, it's like the traditional, like, kind of top tier. Mm-hmm. It, it balloons to, like, over a third. So it's just, it's a strange institution when you step back and kind of consider it. Like, why does it have to be so elite? Why does it have to be just a single profession? We wouldn't tolerate that in a representative government, in like a representative institution. We wouldn't tolerate that in Congress, although Congress is super, super overpopulated with lawyers. But we wouldn't tolerate having such an overrepresentation of like just a handful of schools. And it, it does matter for the kinds of opinions that judges produce. Uh, how so? I mean, that because, that, that, yes, I mean, it, it sounds weird to me, but like what what is the the sort of concrete difference that it makes? So we can think about diversity in in different respects, and there's kind of papers that have been written across different facets. Uh, Most obviously, the representation of people of color and of women does matter for the kinds of opinions that judges produced. Mm -hmm. And it matters most when, let's talk about gender for a moment. So having female judges actually matters the most when the questions before the courts touch on some issue relating to gender, okay. right? So women judges vote differently from male judges when it comes to issues of sex discrimination, reproductive rights, Title IX cases. I want to flip it and actually say that it matters to have all male judges because right. all male judges are uh, like a court that's composed of only men is less likely to rule in favor of a sexual harassment plaintiff, mm-hmm. is less likely to rule in favor of a Title IX claimant, is less likely to rule in favor of reproductive rights. So you can flip you can flip the question kind of reverse and just kind of consider well what would a homogenous court look like? And that's not just because Democrats appoint more women. No, it's actually even taking into account differences in partisanship and to the to the extent that scholars can also differences in ideology. It's hard to do, but there are ways to do it. But it does turn out that there are these differences that translate into meaningful decisions that would then impact the lives of women and people of color, right? And so the same thing kind of happens when you're looking at um, minority judges. Mm-hmm compared to white judges, right? So like black judges are uh, more likely to issue like more lenient sentences to black defendants. Um, There are a bunch of papers kind of mostly showing that. 
there's a cool paper that looks at voting on affirmative action cases and finds that black judges tend to vote like more are more likely to vote in favor of a plaintiff in an affirmative action case, uh, racial discrimination cases as well. So they're kind of analogous cases along those lines. There's less work on occupation. Mm -hmm. And this is a big thing right now because one of the things that Biden is doing is trying to democratize small D, Mm -hmm. uh, democratize uh, judgeships and actually look for people who have different backgrounds, not just the standard kind of prosecutor, big firm background, which is so common in the federal courts, but actually look at people with public defender experience and nonprofit work, which is relatively more scarce. There's less work done on that, but what I've seen kind of suggests that there are also important differences that kind of parlay and kind of come into play when you have judges that have, you know, public defender experience. So all of the stuff I think adds up and it, it does make you question or think about what we want the composition of the courts to look like at a pretty broad level and having it be reflective of the population, I think is, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it shows how little diversity we we have that it's like a big diversity initiative is like a slightly different kind of lawyer who yeah. also went to the same schools. And I mean, because I, I, I know this seems to be, I don't want to say a problem, but I mean, a, a difficulty that they are working through is that, you know, they want to get people from more occupational backgrounds. They want to continue to sort of move the ball forward on um, racial and gender diversity, but like they really don't want to like lower the bar on the like fanciest law schools in America thing, which makes it challenging, you know, with to sort of balance all the different considerations out there. And I've never, I mean, I get it as a sort of like really, really shallow talking point, like, oh, he went to Yale. But like, it doesn't seem to me like it would make a big it doesn't matter. difference, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, like what 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 the problem would be, right? If like somebody's academic credentials were like good rather than amazing. So I, I keep coming back to like Congress as a as an interesting parallel. Like we would we would not have the same discussions about Congress. Mm-hmm. Right. So we would not sit down and think like, well, he went to he went to the University of Florida as opposed to Yale Law School. And I right. just really don't think that that would make <laughs> him, qu- you know, qualified to hold a you know, hold a seat. You think it's so normal, right? Like a guy's like you're born in a state, you go to your state university, you keep living in your state, you get into politics. Right. Like that's like a normal life story yeah. that you would expect from politicians. The way that I've always kind of understood it and the way that I think the reason why we're in this place is because because of the legal profession, because of what legal elites want. Mm-hmm. Like for them, I think if you're if you're talking about the kind of the, the slice of the population that went to these fancy law schools that wants to charge five hundred dollars an hour for services, <laughs> having judges who are pure prestigious above the fray of partisan politics, tying your fortunes with theirs is a really good professional idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So having a, a very prestigious Supreme Court that then employs very prestigious law clerks means that those law clerks go to work for law firms that then become prestigious and then can charge an enormous amount of money. <laughs> All right, let's let's take a break. And, and I want to uh, delve into that a little bit more. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So I don't, I don't know if this is, this is part of the tug of war, uh, but I have the impression at least that in the in the past, like in the mid 20th century, um, the appointments were not only sort of less policy directed, but it looks to me like they were less elite focused in in the kind of way that we've been talking about. Right. That like, um, I don't know, like Earl Warren was the governor of California. Um, even Sandra Day O'Connor had a resume that I feel like by today's standards would be considered a, a little weak, even though like, they, I don't know, like they seem like these were fine Supreme Court justices. Yeah. So yes and no. So one thing that's happened, I think, is is more like in legal circles and in law schools and things. Over time, I think becoming a judge has become the pinnacle of the legal profession. Mm. So it's become like the most prestigious thing you can do. And clerking for a judge is the most prestigious thing you can do. So over time, there has been a gravitation toward viewing a career in in the judiciary as being extremely prestigious. Whereas like, I think maybe earlier in the 20th century, that wasn't necessarily the case, right? So prestige begets prestige. And so you get kind of a people collecting prestigious uh, trophies. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that's happened in the last, in the last half of the 20th century, that's, that's actually really important is law schools opened up their doors to women and minorities. Right. Right. So like, let's think about like Jimmy Carter. So stepping back into the 1970s, Jimmy Carter actually wants to make a big push to appoint more women and minorities to the federal courts. That was one of the things he campaigned on. And he follows through on that um, actually remarkably, but he appoints women and minorities who did not have the educational opportunities that are available to women and minorities today. So the people he appoints are much more likely to go to historically black universities and colleges. They're less likely to go to like the Harvard, the Yale, the Columbia's um, because those schools were just not an option for many of the candidates. Right. Right. Cause he's, he's looking at people who graduated law school in the late fifties. Yeah, law schools were segregated. Right. And so so he has a lot of uh, HBCU grads. And uh, I mean, there were just very, relatively few women going to any kind of exactly. law school. So, so that there's a huge lag there, right? So law schools were segregated basically until like the, the late 60s. And there's a, there's a pretty big lag that basically bleeds into like the Clinton administration, right? So even like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think she was one of a handful of women who graduated from her law school class. And even when she graduated... She was not able to get the corporate law position that she wanted because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, there's this big lag where it kind of bleeds into basically the late 1990s. By the time that Bush and Obama come in, then you're seeing the, the benefits of affirmative action and schools, law schools opening their doors uh, more formally and actually genuinely to women and minorities. And so when Obama comes in and he's the one that we're talking about in terms of like large portions of women and minorities that he nominated they are going to like the top law schools, right? So they're going to the Harvard, the Yales, the Stanfords, the Columbias, um, because they, they're they the the people who are able to go to law school kind of in the 80s and 90s. 
So there's there's a bit of a lag there in terms of the prestige sort of catching up to what the po- what the population of judges kind of, kind of looks like. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the the, the RBG origin story is that um, some some uh, professor at, at Harvard, you know, recommends her in like the strongest possible terms to Justice Frankfurter, and then he's like, "No, I don't want a woman clerk." Uh, exactly. And so, you know, whereas like today, you would expect a um, Supreme Court nominee probably to have had a prestigious circuit court clerkship, to have clerked for a Supreme Court justice, uh, possibly for the justice who he or she is succeeding. But, you know, there was so much uh, gender discrimination at the time. She was young. Frankfurter didn't hire some other woman for, for that clerkship. He just wasn't hiring any women as clerks. So, I mean, interestingly, right, you wound up getting somebody who had probably like more in touch with like normal life uh, yeah. than, than you do in a more egalitarian era. Yeah, but she, but she didn't follow kind of this narrow path that we would consider appropriate for being a Supreme Court justice. I mean, the other person that I, always comes to mind when I think about this is Barack Obama, mm-hmm. him, like Barack Obama himself. Mm-hmm. Right. So he didn't follow the standard path that you would consider appropriate for a potential Supreme Court justice. He didn't do a fancy clerkship out of law school, even though he was president of the law review. He went back to Chicago and was a community organizer. Right. So he like, even though he clearly has the, you know, the quote unquote intellectual capacity to be an incredible Supreme Court justice, depending on your political persuasion, you know, he did not follow the traditional path. And so he would actually be like a non-traditional judicial nominee, which Mm -hmm. is kind of bizarre when you think about it. Um, But yeah, he's another example of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting. You know, I mean, well, so I'm I'm trying to think about Ginsburg and Breyer and why Breyer should resign. Um, and, you know, in, in 2014... I don't think he's going to. <laughs> no, I don't think he will either. Um, but, you know, so, I mean, in 2014, like, some people were were saying this, but then I remember there was a, a backlash against people sort of yeah. urging her to step down. And, you know, I mean, she played a sort of unique role, I mean, I think for a lot of liberal women in America, you know, and had a unique sort of story and and role that, you know, she's a, a bigger deal than your sort of average Supreme Court justice. But then I feel like she never, I feel like it maybe sent a, sent a bad signal to Breyer that like, there was never, I don't feel like it was quite made clear to people, like what a big loss this was for democrats that she yeah. chose to to operate in this way i mean it's like i don't know you know like people people buy all this all this rbg gear but like you're supposed to um think about the consequences of your actions for the world yeah i think uh a lot of it ties into, as you say, with Ginsburg's kind of personal history and the fact that she was this uh, incredible civil rights warrior, um, like before she got to the court, that carried over and created this public persona around her. And Breyer obviously has never had that kind of cult of personality around him. But I think um, the reception that I've seen among members of the legal elite to Ginsburg is very different than what I see with Breyer. Mm-hmm. So with with Ginsburg, I think there was like a cut or some slack. You can't bully a woman to step down from her position. It's her right. There was a lot of gendered language and like kind of pushing back against what people perceive to be bullying of a woman. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Breyer, I don't. Well, first of all, I don't see any of that. But I also see more scorn, for lack of a better term, level that Breyer. Like the 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 reception to the blurb about his book that just came out was scornful. 
And it was scornful, like among members of the legal elite in a way that I've never seen before. So I think that in some sense, I think the lesson was learned from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Just maybe not by the right person. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, like, I don't think he's absorbed it. But it, but but they care. The justices, I think, care so much about what law professors think of them mm-hmm. that even seeing this change in the way that they're talking about a potential prior retirement is really refreshing. Um, and it's nice to see as a political scientist who's very pragmatic and likes to <laughs> you know be able to count to five. Um, it's it's very like it's kind of refreshing to see like members of the legal elite kind of start talking about the court in more pragmatic terms. So it's nice. I think this is like something we should welcome, even if Breyer is not, you know, tuned to this. I mean, the other thing that happened that I hope, you know, opened some people's eyes was the particular sequence of events around Justice Scalia's death, Mitch McConnell refusing to hold a vote on a replacement, Justice Kennedy very clearly doing a strategic retirement. Um, Then after Ginsburg dies, the like mad dash to confirm her replacement. I mean, I think clarified that at least to the people who actually make the decisions, which is presidents and senators, like this is a, you know, I don't want to say it's a game with no rules, but like it's a game that has the formal rules of the United States Constitution. And, you know, McConnell, you know, nobody could stop him from stopping Obama from filling that vacancy. And so, you know, he did. Right. And I mean, but that is at odds with previous precedent, like um, Democratic senates confirmed a number of Reagan and Bush judges. And before that, um, Nixon's appointees got on the court. Right. Like it was just not sort of doable in the early politics to hold those seats open. But now I think, you know, you clearly see that, like, what happens with those court seats is going to be a pure function of the vote counts. I, I think someone like Breyer, who was confirmed in an earlier time, and certainly like his legal education happened at an earlier time, he doesn't like, I'm, I'm ascribing to him what I think he's thinking. I don't sure. know if he actually thinks <laughs> this, but I, I think it's very distasteful to think about the court in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's very distasteful to think about what happened with Merrick Garland and Scalia. And right, you want to pretend that that doesn't happen and it's not going to happen to you or to your replacement. It's strange to say that because it's clearly going to happen, right? I think a, a different a different question is like, why is every appointment so politicized? Why is it so partisan? Why are we not seeing like 98 to two votes like we did even mm-hmm. in the 1980s? Um, and I think that has more to do with two things. One is the rightward shift in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. which has become more and more conservative over the last 15 to 20 years. And we see that actually reflected not just in congressional membership and what congressional Republicans look like, but also judicial appointments. Mm-hmm. So judges appointed by Republicans are now more conservative and kind of drifting rightward, mirroring what's happening in Congress. How do you do that? How do you sort of um, estimate, you know, where the judges stand? So there, there are a couple of different ways to to do that kind of quantitatively. Uh, one thing you could do is you could basically impute the ideology of the president and then some combination of the home state senators. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way of doing it that's pretty common. And uh, obviously a rightward shift is going to show up because as Congress moves to the right, that's going to be reflected in the appointments just sure. kind of mechanically. And then the other uh, more sophisticated way of doing it, which is something that my collaborator and I, Adam Bonica, have worked on quite a bit, is using judges' own financial uh, contributions hmm. that they've made to different causes over the course of their career. So federal judges actually can't, they don't make contributions themselves any like once they're appointed. But it's it's true that judges 
before their confirmation um, tend to be some of the most politically active people that we see, right? Mm -hmm. They're interested in politics. They're passionate about it. Oftentimes they're like in the case of Kavanaugh, they're actually partisan players. So they make lots of campaign contributions and you can use the contributions that they make and the amounts to basically scale them from conservative to liberal. And using that methodology, you can actually see kind of a rightward trend in the judges that Republicans have appointed basically in the last 15 or 20 years. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so as like Congress, congressional Republicans move to the right, so do their, their judicial appointments. Mm -hmm. And you can see that most clearly kind of in the types of judges that Donald Trump appointed. And, uh, some of them are pretty, pretty to the right, you know? So that's, that's one thing. Right. And then the other thing I was going to say too is that over the last 15 or 20 years, I think, you know, this is getting into real partisan politics here, but I think, the consensus is, and I think my feeling is that the Republican Party is a party of defense on policy issues. Mm -hmm. Instead of advancing their own policy agenda and kind of a positive view, a lot of their the policy items that they're selling to the public are basically obstruction of Democratic agenda items or things like socially conservative issues that actually play out through the courts, kind of by design. Right. So the courts have 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 grown to occupy kind of the central space in Republican Party politics and policy platforms. That wasn't the case, I don't think, you know, 30 years ago. So they're just like they're really important. Judges are really important to the Republican Party platform, I think. Again, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think this is not necessarily something that the general public or um, journalism community is is sold on. But um, I think you're you're totally right that it's it's the Republicans have a largely negative space policy agenda and and the courts are just really good for that right like it's it's hard to think about if you if you're like a progressive activist if you want like a green new deal or you want everybody to have health care the judiciary is relevant to everything but it's like it's hard to imagine how you would accomplish that purely through judicial appointments. Whereas if you're oriented mostly to blocking things and sort of preventing or slowing the pace of social change, uh, the courts in the American system are incredibly effective at that. Because among other things, they let you avoid political accountability. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Right. So, so if you don't want to be the one whose name is on a bill striking down some sort of environmental regulation... You could just kind of avoid it and let the courts handle it. Right. If you like, you know, if you're a Republican congressional representative, you don't want to be on the bill that strikes down the ACA. So instead, you kind of encourage lawsuits to proceed through the courts and you make appointments that are going to be unfriendly to the ACA. And that's where we are right now. It's at the Supreme Court right now. And it's I mean, it's been funny to me to watch this like new breed of, um, you know, Republican members of Congress who like like to yell about antitrust law all the time because it's like it's the judicial branch like created the modern uh like relatively narrow concept of what's enforceable antitrust and they like they keep voting for those guys right i mean uh but this is how you you can do things right like there was never anyone in the trump era congress who would be like oh we shouldn't have a clean air act but you can make it very challenging to sort of enforce environmental rules this way as long as, but you need to have, um, the kind of institutional framework in which people can agree that this is what they're going to do without a lot of public discussion of it. I think that a lot of what the courts do in this regard is not well understood by members of the public. Like this kind of, this juncture at which kind of administrative law meets meets politics. Mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of people don't really know how active the courts are in this in this arena. The other thing that we haven't really touched on is 
like a lot of what Republicans are doing in state courts, right? So we've, we've mostly been talking about federal courts and federal courts are appointments based and appointments based systems really end up reflecting kind of the will of the legislature, right? So they reflect the will of Congress and, and judges kind of reflect over time what Congress looks like. So if Congress moves to the right, so the courts will move to the right. Mm-hmm. But in state courts, it's a little bit different. We have an amalgam of systems. Some courts or some states elect their judges and some states they're appointed by the governor. Um, in a couple of states are actually appointed by the state assembly. Mm-hmm. And it's actually been the case in the last 15 or 20 years that uh, in a lot of states and a fair number of states, if judges are not looking like the kinds of judges that Republicans want to see, they're actually changing how judges are selected and they're making they're, you know, changing kind of the rules to get the judges that they want because they want to see these sorts of policy outcomes. Yeah. And I mean, you see a bunch of I mean, there's sort of packing versions of this where they've changed the size of courts. They've been moves to create, um, you know, district systems so you can gerrymander uh, a lot of other things. I mean, I notice I, I, like one big asymmetry between Democrats and Republicans is like uh, the liberal community has been having this like very public conversation about changing the size of the Supreme Court paired with absolutely no action and no, I mean, no indication that well, like, there's a the commission, there's a reform commission. <laughs> sure. But I mean, but I, I would say like, that's even part of it, right? It's like, not only do they like not have the votes to do this, but they're determined to talk about it. Whereas I never see like big public discussion among conservatives about like, how it's really good that we are moving to a district-based system in such and such a state so that we can draw the lines differently. You know, they often don't change these things, but like sometimes they do. Like if they decide there's a change they want to do, they just go do it. It's very boring and technical, but it advances policy goals that they believe in. And in states where they win enough elections uh, to get their way, like they just go, they just go kind of do stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you're right, but I I think that speaks to maybe personality differences between Republicans and Democrats. It's true that Democrats, I think, care a lot about process. And with this reform commission that this, um, so Biden put together this Supreme Court reform commission and he stacked it with like intellectual superpower. Like, so the people on this commission are like very well respected, very, very elite law professors, elite of the elite, right? But it's probably the case that it's not going to really amount to much. Uh, I think there's going to be some like really high quality reports being written. But, you know, by doing that, you're catering, you're actually catering to an important constituency, which is elite legal elites. But I I think this goes back to just your findings about the ideological tilt of the elites, right? That it's because legal elites tilt left, it's comfortable for Democrats to make this this alliance with liberal elites. But then it undermines their political efficacy because legal elites are liberal, but they're also legal elites. And they're invested in these like elite legal projects, yeah. right? Whereas for Republicans, if you if you just relied on legal elites, Republicans would just lose all the time. And so like that's crazy. And they're not gonna do that. So yeah. they like build a political institution that is like meant to advance policy goals, which liberal law professors would find distasteful. Like they wouldn't they wouldn't want to be in a club like that. Like they wanna have a nice seminar. So this is actually like one of the one of the conclusions of our book, like what you just said is like one of the main findings. So we do we do this looking at the states, right? So mm-hmm. in states where Republicans want to change what courts look like, 
the the first thing they usually do is they dismantle these merit commissions. Do you know Do you know what these are? Yeah, yeah. So I'm well. Let's tell tell people. But I mean, like the basic idea is you you like have fancy lawyers evaluate each other. Right. Yeah. So they so there are a bunch of states that use this thing called merit commissions to select their judges. And they're basically like panels of elite lawyers in the state. And they'll come up with a slate of potential candidates and then they'll pass that slate to the governor or, or there will be some sort of vote on it or something like that. And inevitably, one of the first things that Republicans do when they're trying to change the tenor of the courts or like trying to reform, like trying to engage a judicial reform is that they start trying to dismantle these merit commissions. And And the reason why is essentially because the legal elite in any state tend to be more left-leaning than the than the state legislature. Right. Right. And so the candidates that they're going to try to put forth are not the candidates that Republicans want to see. So so we see a lot. We actually document this in the book. Right. So a lot of the attempts at judicial reform will be dismantling merit commissions and actually moving toward partisan elections. Mm-hmm. That's like a very classic Republican move. Why you want you actually want voters voting and you want to be able to have the voters see the partisan affiliation of judges. That's what voters care about. And providing right. that information to, to voters actually results in more like more Republican um, affiliated judges on state courts. You can kind of see the, the similar thing happening in federal courts, too, when, um, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, when the Bush administration actually formally said they didn't want the American Bar Association involved in any way with the right. vetting of judges. Right. That's another that's another arena where, like, they don't want the involvement of legal elites. The Republicans don't. And I think it's a kind of, you know, there's a there's a tension in um, progressive thought where I mean, I feel like progressive people generally uh, like want to say that they're they're democratic and that they are, you know, overturning elites and and democratizing things and so on and so forth. But in a practical sense, also progressives are more um, into elites and expertise. And in this field, but I mean, I think in a lot of fields, objectively yeah. advantaged by, you know, systems that like formally empower professional organizations versus uh, the mass public, right? That if you, if, I mean, if if you let lawyers pick the judges, you would get more liberal judges than if you let the voters pick. Yes, empirically true, which we document in our book. <laughs> but what, one thing that is also true about about like kind of this reform commission, going back to this reform commission that was just initiated, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of them actually clerked on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. You do have to wonder, like kind of leaving aside ideology or partisanship, if you choose a commission where where people have kind of a professional interest mm-hmm. in propping up the prestige of that affiliation, mm-hmm. like, will they actually propose meaningful reform? Right. Will they think outside of the box to actually propose something that could potentially undermine their own professional status? Um, and, and the I answer don't know, is no. I, yeah, I don't <laughs> think the answer is yes. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, you know, I think, like I said, like, the... The caliber of the people on it is exceptional. I know that they're taking their task very, very seriously, but you have to you have to question whether we're like appointing people who stand to benefit from the current system to oversee the system, right? Or to suggest reforms, right? I mean, to be frank, I mean, this is why this is why I have you on the show, because it's it seems so normal to like talk to political scientists to understand political institutions. Um, but there's tends to be this like exception, right? Where if the media wants commentary on the federal judiciary if politicians want you know somebody to express an opinion it's like well you have to ask uh law professors who clerked at the supreme court and you know i mean people like good people smart people who have good values um are not great necessarily looking objectively at 
systems and institutions that they are personally involved with. Yeah. I, we wouldn't say that like only former senators can like have opinions about the Senate. Um, it's just like it's part of the government and, you know, you need to look at it. Uh, you need to try to look at it objectively. I mean, it's, of course, relevant what insiders think um, and they may have, you know, useful ideas. But um, I mean, this is why this Breyer thing has like thrown me for such a loop. Like, how can you look at the past bunch of years and be like, well, what we need to do here is convince people that this is totally not political. Like, who are you? You're going to try to convince a population of idiots like a, I don't know. It's 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 also not clear whether he could actually do anything to counter like Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, right. I just, I don't know. Like <laughs> he he's not going to be the one to change people's minds on this. Yes. I mean, I I think I think that's right, right? I mean, ultimately um well, this is the point of your book, I think. On, on some level, yeah. right? It's like it's not up to the judges what happened. Right. Like this is the outcome of a of a process with senators and presidents and the legal profession and interest groups and and people who care. Um, you know, on the just one thing on the on the commission, going back to this commission, yeah. I think the audience of the commission are legal elites. I don't think it's members of the public. And if if your audience is legal elites and law professors, members of the legal profession, Biden is doing not bad. Because whatever they say will be gladly accepted because of the star caliber of that commission. Yeah, I mean, if you if you put it together the right way, right, it can it can sort of do that. The other thing that's kind of interesting about it is that you know we have we have data on this as well, which is that most members of the public are opposed to court expansion, mm-hmm. but people are actually very receptive to the idea of term limits. So there may be a like there there could be a path forward that may be palatable to most people that you could sell to legal elites. I don't I don't know. I mean, this is one of these things where the text of the Constitution is just unfortunately unhelpful and seems to seems to make it easier to expand the court rather than create term limits, even though I think most people like to most people um, having a fixed term seems sensible, whereas expanding the court is very unpopular. But yeah, I mean, they should definitely be fixed terms. Like, that was crazy. That's a that's that's, that's crazy, a crazy yeah. thing. People yeah. hundreds of years ago wrote down. And as far as I can tell from the debates and stuff, like without a lot of serious consideration of the alternatives. I don't think anyone thought that there would be someone in their late 80s still still on the court. This was I just don't think it was this was conceivable. Right. I mean, this was not like lifespans were drastically shorter and it wasn't necessarily this kind of all absorbing, super prestigious appointment. Right. I mean, it's just funny. It's, you know, sometimes you look back at constitutional debates and you think, well, you know, maybe I agree, maybe I disagree, but they they had a thorough discussion, sort of the pros and cons. But yeah, I mean, nobody was saying, well, what if there's an 87 year old you know, who doesn't seem physically fit enough to do the job anymore, but people really want him there. Like this was not, and the early justices didn't stay on the court for that long. No, no. And then the other thing that's like this weird mismatch that happens now is that the court is increasingly looking at questions that are highly technical and like sophisticated, the cutting edge of technology, like Mm -hmm. Google software, right? And you're having someone who's 85 and maybe not familiar with like different kinds of coding nuances kind of rule on this. And that leaves a lot of discretion basically to the, to the briefs and then to the their clerks and in this weird way. So there are kind of nonpartisan reasons maybe that term limits would actually be a pretty good idea. Yep. All right. Uh, well, with that, I think I'm going to uh, going to let you go. Uh, but I uh, I strongly recommend uh, checking out the book. Um, it is the judicial tug of war. Um, I think it's a really um, you know 
good. It, it is a different kind of perspective on these questions than a lot of what is out there normally in, in the media. It's super interesting. Um, thank you so much. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.